come this morning. Uh, we are pressing on in, in the life and teachings of Jesus as we press through the book of John, sitting at Jesus' feet, looking deeply into his life and ministry, and the things that he had to say as he walked among us. We're in John chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 18. John chapter 7. We read this. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them and he said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone, anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to sit at your feet, to hear you speak these words again in truth and power, to help us understand them. To give us hearts that will to do your will so that we will indeed see and know the truth of your words. Who you are and all that you have said. So Father, we come longing for you to work in our midst, in our hearts. And so we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those first five verses there in verses 10 to 15, we pick up on the Feast of Booths. We talked about it last week. It's a great feast in the life of Israel. There were three mandatory feasts. They had a whole series of them that they engaged in, but there were three during the course of the year that required attendance. And anybody who lived within a certain radius of the city of Jerusalem and the temple had to go. And so you've got the masses converging on Jerusalem. It's a great feast celebrating God's provision in the wilderness, but it's also the time of the harvest. It's a harvest festival And so there's a lot of, you know, it's a very upbeat time together as a a nation, as a family, as a people. And so they gather. Jesus doesn't go up with his crew. Some of them head up. We talked about that last week. He said, my time is not yet come. It's not fulfilled. I'm not going to go. But after they go, the feast is about a week long. Um, His time wasn't far off. So a few days later, Jesus himself goes up, but he goes up privately, in secret. He goes without fanfare, and we're told then he he slips into the city. So in verses 10, after his brothers had gone up, he also goes up, but not publicly. He goes in private. In verse 11, we're told that the Jews are looking for him. When it says the Jews there, that usually means the Jewish leadership, Um, although it seems that he was the talk of the town. Everybody gathered in Jerusalem and the happenings in the nation of Israel and the life of Israel. Jesus is on the top of the news list of uh, breaking news. And so there's a lot of discussion that the Jews are looking for him, but their motives aren't good. They're not looking for him so that they could sit at his feet and hear from him. If you remember back in verse 1 of this chapter, 
It says that he didn't go about openly in Judea. That is the area where Jerusalem is situated because the Jews are seeking to kill him. Right? There's a plot out. There's a hit out on Jesus. And so he doesn't openly go down there. That's one of the reasons probably he slips down in private, doesn't make a lot of fanfare, shows up in the temple to teach. We're told there's a lot of muttering going on. I like that in verse 12. It was much muttering. There are a lot of ways you could translate that word. But there's, there's a lot of talk, right? There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of discussion about Jesus. Is he a good man or is he a bad man? Right? Is he teaching us the truth or is he leading the people astray? And so you've got these camps forming, right? They say there's a lot of muttering about him. Some say he's good. Others say he's a deceiver, that he's leading the people astray. Lydon, the commentator on this passage, puts it this way. He says, the coming of our Lord, say in your bulletin under the first point, if you follow the outline. He said, the coming of our Lord acted as a moral shock upon the existing fabric of thought and life. It broke up the stagnant, the mixed modes of feelings and thinking. It set men in movement. It led to anxious self-questionings, to widespread anxiety of mind, to general unsettlement. It destroyed that tranquil satisfaction with things as they were. Jesus challenges the status quo. He stirs the pot. He shakes. He rocks the boat. He says controversial things. Is he telling the truth? Or is he leading people astray? Should we worship him or should we crucify him? What do we do with this guy? Every time Jesus opens his mouth, he forces people to choose. Is he telling the truth or is he lying? You know, is, 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 do I need to sit down at his feet and listen or do we need to silence him? He forces people to take sides. You know, it reminded me of that prophecy by Simeon. It's there in your bulletin in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is born and Mary brings him to the city at the time to be circumcised. And we're told Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. He's going to shake things up. He's going to be a sign that is opposed a rock of offense, a sign that will be opposed by many and he will cause the fall and the rise of many because he will cause people to choose between him and the truth and eternal life. And the rejection of him and the rejection of the truth and therefore the rejection of life. He will, he will cause the fall and the rise of many. And so in the middle of the feast, in verses 14 and 15, in the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up in the temple. His time is fulfilled. The time is right in the temperature of things going on in the city. In the middle of the feast, in the middle of all this speculation, Jesus stands up and he teaches. And it's interesting, it doesn't tell us what he says. It doesn't tell us what he taught. You know, he could have given a version of the Sermon on the Mount. He could have given some teaching that wasn't captured and recorded for us. It could have been something captured somewhere else. But in this particular point, John doesn't even bother telling us what it was Jesus said. He stood up and he talked, taught in the temple, and he told that whatever he said, it was good. It was impressive because the crowd were told there in, in, in verse 15 that the Jews, therefore, the Jews, the leadership who is out to silence Jesus, who want to kill him. It says the Jews marveled. 
saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Right? They're amazed at him. It's almost a grudging admiration in their statement. How is it that he is learning he's never studied? That what he says is, you know, there's a guy who's a, he's basically a country boy who never went to college, probably didn't finish high school kind of a thing, and yet he's teaching upper-level seminary courses with power and depth and, and, and meaning. Like he, he owns it and he can, he can bring it to them. And so Jesus says things about God in a way that, that these guys have just never heard it or tasted or seen it before. They're amazed at this guy. Where does he get it? How does he do it? I studied for 10 years at the greatest institutions under all the, the uh, you know, the greatest teachers and rabbis, and, and they can't pull off the power and connection that Jesus has with the truth. And Jesus explains it to them. You know, he sees, Jesus knows what's going on. I don't know if they asked him directly. It's in quotes in, in mind, so, you know, they said it out loud. How is it that he has all this learning? He's never studied, and Jesus answers them. Jesus explains it to them. In verse 16, my teaching is not mine. It's not mine. It's it's the teaching of him who sent me. Why is simple? This is God's teaching. This is God's doctrine, not mine. This is the Father's doctrine. You know, the the God who sent me, this is this is his teaching, and so it it bears that mark. It bears the mark of truth. And power, because it's God's word, not my word. We see there in John 3, it's in your bulletin under the first point, Jesus said basically this, back in chapter 3, which we studied many moons ago. He said, for him whom God has sent utters the words of God. Right? For he gives him the spirit without measure. You know, my words are the words of God. I utter the words of God. Him whom the Father has sent, that's me. Again and again, I'm the sent one, and I, I say what the Father tells me to say. I'm delivering a message. You know, I'm, the, I'm a prophet. I'm the mouthpiece of God. Right? This is not my opinions. These are not just my thoughts. This is not my, you know, conjuring up these things. He says, John chapter 12, I've not spoken in my own authority. But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment of what to say, what to speak. It's not my doctrine. You know, one immediate application of this for, for us, for me anyway, is I think about what I do as I stand up here week by week. And as we do this in the life of the church, and we have people who are teaching Sunday school to our children and to adults and leading small groups, and, you know, our, our goal ought to be, my goal would want to be, this should be the heart of every preacher and teacher, what I'm teaching, this is not my doctrine. These are not my thoughts and my opinions. This is, this is not me delivering to you my wisdom, you know, or at least by God's grace, I would never want it to be that. But it's the very word of God. And so there should be an obvious dependence as I teach you what I teach. I want again and again, as I say in verse 12 or verse 13 or verse 15 or verse 16, there's nothing that delights, I think, for most preachers and teachers than to see every hyad in the congregation look down at it and read it in the text and follow it. And they see where it's coming from. 
You should never have to say about the preacher and what he stood up there and talked about this Sunday and just be like, where, where did he get that? You know, and there are lots of times, well, we won't go there. It should be obvious. We are grounded in the Word of God. It's not, not my thoughts and my opinions. Paul had this attitude as he preached and taught there in Galatians chapter 1 in your bulletin. He says, for I would have you know, my brothers, church of Jesus to whom I'm addressing. He says that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not my gospel. I didn't make it up. I didn't get it from some other guy. Right? It's not man's gospel. I did not receive it from anybody, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know Paul is unique as an apostle, and his revelation, at least in terms of some of this uh, that we have captured in his letters, is immediate. You know, but we have the same Old Testament Paul did, and now we have the revelation that he was receiving and scripturated in, in the word that is in front of us, and so we rely on the same revelation that he did and have the same testimony. I didn't receive it from any man, but it is the very word of God. And my friends, this should be true of you as well. Right? And, you know, it, it's just the trickle down into, into the general life of God's people. We should all stand in that same place. And the doctrines that you believe, the teaching that you believe, and as you share what you believe with other people, we would have the same foundation to say that our conscience is, our thinking ought to be captive to the Word of God. I believe what I believe because I believe that I see it clearly taught in Scripture. What I believe about the sanctity of life and adoption, what I believe about the nature of human sexuality and the proper channels for it, what I believe about the nature of marriage and the way that it ought to be carried out in a culture and a society, what I believe about hell and judgment, right? My doctrine is not mine. You know, as Jesus says it, you know, it's, it's my doctrine, but it's not mine. It's, it's the Word of God. We're captive to God's Word, to the doctrine of the God of the Bible. So they're not your personal thoughts. It's not your personal opinions. But you stand in the same place as we stand in this culture that is so hostile to these things. It, there's a certain confidence that comes that as you stand on these principles, as you hold these doctrines and beliefs, that you can say, this isn't my idea. You know, in fact, in some ways, if I were making it up, I'd probably bend a little bit, you know, so that it would just go easier for me. You know, I would conform a little bit more. I would go easier. I'm not sure. The doctrine of hell, that's a hard one. I'm not sure I would make that up if it were up to me. If you, I don't know what I would do. But uh, here's the thing. I have, I have confidence in stating these things, and, and as you should in our culture, because you stand on the very words of God. It's not my doctrine. It's God's. The other thing I want us to move on and see is, is, is not only is Jesus' doctrines the very word of God, but there's a connection as he is expressing it to them in their understanding of this doctrine. He says there's a connection between our willing, our willingness in our hearts and our posture toward God and our knowing and understanding these things. Right? He says in verse 16, Jesus answers them and he says, my teaching is not mine. And then verse 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching 
is from God. You'll get it. You'll see it. You'll love it. You will approve of it. You will will understand and you will taste the mark of God on the truth. Right? There is this connection, though, between willing. He says, if anyone is is willing to do God's will, then he is the one who will know. And the Greek here, it lays out very close together, whoever wills his will. Right? It's that close. And then he says, and then to do it. Right? But whoever wills his will to do it will know, will understand. You know, this, this posture of, of willingness. It is true that God gives light and truth to those who love to do His will. Boyce says, it's here in your bulletin under the second point, that God does not give assurance in spiritual things merely to satisfy curiosity. Right? He does not teach divine truth to those who will not live by it. Right? So there's that posture that those who aren't going to live by it aren't going to be led into all truth if they have no interest in actually living it out, right? A willing heart and the light of the truth always go together, right? A willing heart and the light of the truth always go together because both of them are the result of the new birth, right? They're the marks of a new heart. They're the marks of a new man, a willing heart and, and the light of the truth to see and to know and to love the truth, to see Jesus for who He is, to see His words as the words of God, to enter into all truth. Jesus told them, and we'll get to it here later in John you know, 13, 14, 15, as He teaches them about the Holy Spirit, and He says the Spirit will lead you into all truth. And the Spirit will do that to hearts that have been made new and are willing to do His will. He does not give a willing heart And then not lead us into the truth. But he also does not lead us into the truth if there is no heart to obey it. We can listen week after week. And you can hear the truth up here. But it will will never penetrate. It will never come home. It will never be be life-shaping and life-transforming if there is not a corresponding preparation in the heart to do the will of God. Willing faith that makes us receptive to the truth. Psalm 119.34, we see them together, and this is the way they always belong together, understanding and obedience. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, give me understanding. You know, we gather week by week, give me understanding. Teach me, O God, teach, enlighten my mind, give me the light of truth, you know, give me understanding, but then there is that heart that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. I want to know the truth because I want to live the truth. I want to know the truth because it's your truth. You are the truth. And I want to live in accordance with it. I want to, I want to live in it. Give me understanding so I can do it with all of my heart. Charles Wesley is famous for saying, Light obeyed increases light. Light resisted bringeth night. Light obeyed increases light. Light resisted bringeth night. And what he's saying is when we obey, when we do God's will as far as we know it, he leads us into all truth. He he gives us more light. But if we don't live the truth that we already know, 
If we don't have a heart that, of obedience to do even what we already know, he is not going to lead us deeper into truth. But not only so, it actually hardens us. To be in possession of the truth, to know the truth and then not to do the truth. How can you live in that state? I know what's true, I know what's right, just not going to do it. It actually hardens the heart against the truth. To possess it and have no heart to do it makes us hard to it. You know, we can live with the truth and be in possession of it, but it have no effect on us, no power over us. No, it doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. It does, our heart is not willing to do it. Light obeyed increases light. To know the truth and to not do it actually hardens our hearts. I think that's what James is saying there in your bulletin in James chapter 1. He says, my friends, church, brothers, sisters, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Or you're deceiving yourselves. Right? Be doers and not hearers only or you're deceived. Right? You're living in this thing of being in possession of the truth but having no heart to do the truth. And it actually leaves us deceived and and hardened, that we live side by side with it, but don't love it, right? To hear and to know God's will and not to do it is a dangerous thing. The one who hears and obeys, who wills to do his will, is led into all truth. That's what Jesus is saying. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God. He will, he will get it. He will understand it. He will love it. And so Jesus there in Luke chapter 8, it's in your bulletin under number 2. In Luke 8, he says this then, take care then how you hear. And it's interesting because there are a couple versions of this and not all of them have that, that introit. Take careful, be careful then how you hear, which really defines what he says afterward, which is this, for the one who has will be given more. And the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Now, what does that have to do with being careful about how you hear? And I think, it's, I think he's driving it exactly that. Are you mixing your hearing with faith that leads to a changed life and doing? Or are you hearing, being a hearer of the word and not a doer, and so you're deceiving yourselves, even what he thinks he has, because we possess a knowledge of the truth. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Psalm 25 leads the humble in what is right and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to those, for those who will keep his covenant and his testimonies. Right? The humble are those who know and love and do God's will, who keep a covenant who live out his testimonies, his laws, his ways, his word, his truth. This phrase captured me as I was reading this passage and doing it. I think, I think again, it is central. There are these things that Jesus says, and they, they're just tucked in there, these, these phrases, these things, and this willing to do his will, I think, is the very essence of discipleship. Well, I think it's at the very core and center of the Christian life about what it means to know and to love God and to follow Jesus. Is this willing to do his will? What does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus? You know, but to will to do his will. That's what it means to follow him. You know, and Jesus, as we follow Jesus, John 4, it's here in your bulletin under the last point. Jesus said this about his own relationship to the will of God. He said, my food, 
is to do the will of him who sent me. Right? I will to do his will. <laughs> it's my food. Right? And he's saying, you know, my, my will to do his will is not just slavish, which unfortunately is, is where the Christian life can end up if, again, particularly if we just possess a knowledge of the will up at this level, we hear his word. And, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, that his desire to do God's will, his relationship to the will of God is not a slavish relationship that I'll, I'll do his will because it's his will and I'm supposed to do his will. And so here it is, I'll, you know, I'll buck up, buck down and grit my teeth and do what I got to do kind of thing. Jesus says, it's my food. Right? I, I, I feed on it. I'm nourished by it. I, I, you know, it, it, it's what gives me life and health and nourishment. Doing God's will feeds my soul. It's what I want. It's what I want more than anything else. It pleases me to please Him. It satisfies me. It nourishes my soul. Right, Psalm 40, this is a psalmist. This is God's people. I delight to do your will. I don't have to do his will. I want to, I delight to do his will. I delight to do your will, oh my God, because your law is in my heart. Your will, God's will is expressed in his laws. And he says, and I delight to do your will because your will, your law is in my heart. When he says it's in my heart, that means I've internalized it. I've owned it. I've made it my own. I love it. It's my will. I delight to do your will because your will is becoming my will. And I think this is a lot of it. He's not just submitting. He's owning it. And the essence of, of discipleship is when our will and God's will merge. Isn't that growing in the Christian life? Isn't that growing in what it means to follow Jesus? When more and more, you know, we talk about being like Jesus and Christ-likeness, and a lot of it has to do with the, the shaping of our wills, where our wills merge with His. You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to do what He wants me to do. Not just willing to do his will, but I love it, right? Christian maturity and growing in discipleship, the aligning of these wills more and more. Jesus says it like this, Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, he should deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me. You know, there's this statement, you know, Denying of ourselves and following Jesus at the heart of this. Right? Which is what? It's learning to prefer His will. Denying ourselves and following Jesus is nothing but learning, right? Learning to prefer His will over my will. To deny my will and to follow His. To do what He would have me do. You know, I used to read this verse and it would sound so austere, so ascetic, you know, so uh, almost monkish, you know, denying ourselves and taking up a cross and, and, and dying and following Jesus. And there's, a, there's an austerity that it can sound about it. But I think when you put it in the context of Jesus' teaching, I don't think that's what's there at all. Not for those who will to do his will, who have a new, a, a new heart where there's this willingness and this leading into the truth that this is about delighting in Jesus' will. It's about His will becoming like food to us every day, right? He says daily, every day. 
You and I know this is the daily battle. There's no switch you can throw. You know, I used to pray prayers like that. I used to ask God, you know, like right now I'm committing myself to you anew, right? Right now I am, I am choosing like you and your kingdom, right? Like now would you set it in stone? Would you lock me in at this rate, you know? It's like a mortgage rate. Can you lock me in at this rate? So it doesn't change, you know? Like I'm making the choice now. But the thing is I've got to make it again tomorrow, no, no, I've got to make it again in like an hour from now. Because I'm going to get into a circumstance, and it's going to be this. It's going to be a battle of the wills. There is the will of God. And I know mostly what it is, for the most part, because it's written right here, and I've been reading it for a long time, you know. And there is, there is this will, and then there's mine. And an hour from now, I'm going to have to decide which one I'm going to do. And so are you in every circumstance, right? And what it comes down, every moment where this is where the struggle raises, every circumstance, I've got two choices. There's the will of God, and then there's mine. And oh, the delight of every believer's heart when those two can merge. And I would delight to do his will. And the struggle is over. But every time we're tempted, sexually, financially, Tempted to laziness and neglect in the Christian life and a thousand temptations. It's, right? Well, what do we see? We see it's a struggle of wills. Am I going to be my own Lord, my own King, and do what I want to do? Am I going to know His Word and not do it? Or am I going to will to do His will? Right? He says, if you want to come after me. When I read that verse, you need to read into that. If anyone would come after me, he's saying, if you love me. Those are, who, those are the ones who come after him. Right? If you want to pursue me. Right? If you want to walk with me. If you, want, you know, if you love me, come to the cross where the self is crucified and you're set free to follow me. That's what I hear it saying. That if you, want, if you love me and you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, he says, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross. And those two things can't be separated. It really is we come to the cross there so that, so that we can deny ourselves. So, we, so the old man is crucified, as Paul would put it. And, and I'm set free from the old man to follow Jesus, to will his will, to do what he wants me to do. Every day, going to the cross. Every day, clarifying God's will and seeking the grace to want to do it. He's working within you both the will and to do of His good pleasure. Right? He's working within us, Philippians chapter 2, to will and to do what we desperately need. And so we have to go to the cross to, to clarify that will and to find the grace to be crucified to the old man and to live to the new man and to the following of Christ. And, and, and then in every moment, you know, you're angry at your spouse, you're angry at your friends, you're angry at your parent, you're angry at your coworker. you're having some struggle, some fight, and it's in that moment. It's about you and God. See, we think it's about you and somebody else, about you and that other church member that you're, you're at odds with or that coworker or you know, but you need to understand, that's about you and God again. In that moment, it's a battle of wills. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? 
So you need to look away from them. You need to look away from the circumstance and come to the cross and say, what would it look like to do God's will right here? Right here, right now, in this moment, in my marriage, in this friendship, in this relationship at work, in this relationship at church, looking away from the person to say, what would it look like to do the will of God right here, right now? What does his word say? What does Jesus say? Bear with one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Right? And, and the list goes on. What does it look like? You know, there's this thing that went around. Everybody knows WWJD. Right? What would Jesus do? You know, it had mixed, it had mixed reviews. I understand that. Um, because there are a lot of things that Jesus would do that I wouldn't do. Right? What would Jesus do? Well, he would go to the cross and die for my sins. I can't do that, you know, so there's a little mixed in there, I know there was some mix, you know, what is this WWJD, but I think there's something really, the impulse in it is right, I would just modify it slightly to say, what would Jesus have me do, I think, I think that's the impulse in it, what would Jesus have me do, what, what does it look like to be obedient to Jesus in this moment, in this time, in this place, what would Jesus have me do, what does it look like to deny myself and follow Jesus right here, right now. I believe this is the essence of revival. A lot of people define revival different ways. I've collected definitions over, over time. But I, I think right here in some ways, for me, at least in my own experience, revival comes when somewhere along the, the way, God's Spirit works within me to break the chains that hold my will to think certain things in my life that are holding me down, holding me back, keeping me complacent. And coming to the place where all of a sudden I, am, I find myself free and wanting to do God's will. You know, radically though, like, is, like when, you, when you read all those things in the scripture and you see these people radically following Jesus and Paul and dying every day and following Jesus and we're, we're in my heart it gets to the place, you know what, all the culture and all the stuff that I have and all the things that tie me down that I don't think I could live without and There's this moment where you want to surrender yourself to Christ afresh and really be radically committed to will His will, whatever it is. Whatever it is. See, most of us, we will say, oh yeah, I want to will His will, but then it comes down to this, well, (laughs) that's my time. (laughs) You know, or no, 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 that's my hobby. You know, that, that one isn't, get your hands off that one. You know, or no, I'm, I'm mad and that's just the way I'm going to stay that way. Or yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, we have our pets, you know, those things that we're, that we're chained, we're bound. We can't, we're not free to follow. And revival is when I think it's hard for me to express where we just give ourselves afresh to will to do his will, whatever it costs. And, and, and it always means radical reformation in your life. It means I'm not going to do this anymore. It means I'm going to let this go. It means I'm going to cut my left hand off and gouge out my right eye and things that are close to me and costly to me and will be painful to do, but they're what I need to do to follow Jesus, to will his will, to be his man. Oh, mercy of God, if I could lock in that rate, right? Now you want to lock it in? But he says, my friends, if you want to love me, come after me daily daily, daily this rages, and you must come to the cross, 
the old man is crucified. We are set free to follow Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we love our will. I love what I love. I love me. I love my habits and my hobbies. I love my preferences and to be in control of my life and my time and my goods. I love being king. Father, forgive me. Forgive us. Break the chains and set us free that we can go after Jesus, follow him, and to will your will. We ask it and we pray it and we seek it in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, who saves us every day. Amen.